John chapter 18, we'll finish up a couple of verses where we left off last week at verse 39 and jump right into chapter 19. We'll go through verse 15. That's the text. We're going through the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we'll be finished uh, at Easter. We'll look at chapter 20, the resurrection, finished a couple weeks after that, end in uh, end of May. June, we're going to do a study of the fruit of the Spirit, and then um, we'll, we'll look at some other stuff pertaining to the church. So, John chapter 18, verse 39. Hear the word of the Lord. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Pilate talking. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king, opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down at the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramic, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered, verse 16, him over to them to be crucified. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of us, keep your Bibles open to John chapter 18, chapter 19. There are Bibles in the back. I will have verses up for you. If you do not own a Bible, please. Grab a Bible on the way out, it's right by the sound booth on the table right there. Grab a Bible, take it home. Uh, we'd love for you to have the scriptures in your hands. So as we look at chapter 18 going into chapter 19, it's probably the darkest and ugliest chapter of scripture, in the, especially in the book of John. It records the beating, it records the mocking, crucifixion, death, and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Friday morning. The morning after Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room, they had shared the Passover meal together. It was a time of fellowship. It was a time of teaching. It was a time of 
of, of comforting. And it says in John 13, 1, that Jesus was loving his disciples to the utmost. It was during that meal that Jesus washed the 12 disciples' dirty feet. It was at that meal that Judas Iscariot took the bread from Jesus' hand and went out into the night to gather a band of soldiers who would later find Jesus and the other 11 disciples in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that Judas kissed him and Peter, Judas kissed him and Peter defended him by pulling a sword, cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Then Christ, in loving service, in care for this man, healed him. I said earlier at the service, if that was me, I would have said, good for you. See what you get for coming out here. You lost an ear. But not Jesus. He loved them and heals them. And he tells Peter, put your sword away. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then they bound and arrested Jesus and took him to Annas. He was the, the patriarchal high priest. And the religious trial began. Annas had a lot of power and a lot of influence. He tried to get Jesus to incriminate himself, but, but he failed at doing so. So they passed him along to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the actual high priest that year. Still in the middle of the night, Caiaphas interrogates Jesus. He's with the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, the power rulers of Israel. As they watched and they listened, and then Caiaphas asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And he says, yes, I am. And at that point, the Sanhedrin gathered back together moments later as the sun was coming up. And they sentenced Jesus to die. But they didn't want to do the dirty work. So Jesus is sentenced to die in front of these religious rulers. And they bring him off to Rome. They bring him to Pilate. They're afraid. They, they see the mobs that have joined Jesus as he came in on the triumphal entry a few days earlier. They've seen that he's a healer and a miracle worker, and he has a crowd following him. Passover season in Jerusalem is packed. There's millions, possibly, of people there. And they don't want to set, upset people and have a revolt against the rulers of Israel. So they bring him to Rome. They hope that Pilate will execute him. Not only out of fear, but the scripture says in chapter 18, verse 32, that Caiaphas, the high priest of the Sanhedrin, brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman ruler, because of fulfillment of Scripture. Last, year, last week we looked at some of the Old Testament prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus would be crucified on how important and necessary it was for him to be crucified. It talks about hands being pierced, being buried, and no bones being broken. All this is the fulfillment of Scripture. The religious trial is over. Now Jesus is brought to the governor, Pontius Pilate. Although the Jews did not generally have the right of capital punishment, we see it once in a while in the New Testament. It's rare. They know Rome does have the final say in executing a prisoner. Last week, we saw phase one of this Roman trial. In chapters 18, verses 28 through 38, Jesus before, brought before Pilate. Let me just mention this quickly so I bring everybody up to speed. Two major trials happening on the last day here at Jesus, last morning of Christ. Two major trials started actually in the middle of the night. One major trial is before the religious leaders. They have three phases. So if you're reading the text, you'll, you'll know as you read the four, uh, the harmony of the Gospels. He was first brought to Annas. Then he was brought to Caiaphas. 
Then he's brought to the Sanhedrin, all three phases of one religious trial. Next, he's brought to the Roman authorities. Again, three major pieces and phases within the Roman trial. Number one, he's brought before Pilate. We saw that last week. Chapters 18, verse 28 through verse 38. At that point, John does not record it, but Luke does, that Jesus was then sent to Herod. And after Herod got done with him, Jesus was sent back from Herod back to Pilate, phase three of the Roman trial. So you need to know that as we look at the text because between verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8 is when Jesus was sent to Herod. Again, it's not for the purpose of John, does not record every single incident. You put them all together and you have one story. In phase one, we looked at last week, Pilate was looking for a crime that he could bring against Jesus. He asked the Jewish people, what crime are you bringing this man to me for? And if you look at chapter 8, verse 18, verse 32, not 32, I'm sorry, verse 30, they said, if this man were not doing evil, we would, have, we would not deliver him over to you. In other words, we don't really have any witnesses at the moment. We have really no accusation. Well, it's just he's an evil man. So Pilate needs witnesses. Pilate needs evidence if he's going to formally charge Jesus and to have him crucified. But one thing Pilate did learn from Jesus during this first encounter. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom, because they said, are you the king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. We're not just going to sit around. But my kingdom is not of this world, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world. Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is nothing you understand, Pilate. In fact, he does not understand that Jesus inaugurates the kingdom with his incarnation and all the messianic hopes that, that the scriptures speak about. He doesn't understand that. And anyone who doesn't have not bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings won't understand the already and not yet of the kingdom that has come in the person of Christ and will one day be inaugurated and being brought into full fulfillment and all of the earth will be redeemed. God's people and earth itself will have a new place, a new home, a new healing. I talked about it last week. So Pilate asked him, so are you a king? Look at verse 37. Yes, Jesus is like, yeah, the purpose of my kingship was coming to bear witness of the truth, verse 37. It's the whole point of John, that Jesus came bearing witness to the truth. According to Scripture, God is truth. And Jesus has come and made himself known to us through the person and his work that he is the eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the embodiment of truth. He is truth personified. I care, bear witness. That's why we call the series The invisible made visible. The God of creation of eternity has made himself known in the person and work of Christ. The invisible made visible. So we are now looking at the third phase. We don't see Herod. We don't see that second phase. He comes back. And now we pick up the story and and Jesus is before Pilate on the final phase of the religious, excuse me, of the Roman trial is where we pick up. We're going to see four things. And and as I study into this week, there's so much irony in the book of John. And, you know, in chapter 2, it's like no prophet has any honor in his own home. And then Jesus goes home and it says they welcomed him. Well, the irony was there, but they did, it was fake. It was real. Jesus is feeding 10, 12,000 people with bread. Five loaves of bread, two fish. And they're like, 
they come up to him and they're like, uh, you know what, show us something. Make, make, do, do some tricks for us. Our fathers gave us manna from heaven. It's like, really? Like, they missed it. There's a lot of irony. In this chapter, end of 18, all of 19, I see four things of great irony, of great truth. Four things. First, behold the man. What does that really mean? We're going to look at that. Secondly, behold the son. Third, behold the ruler. And finally, behold the king. All done in a, in a sarcastic, ironic way to show what Jesus truly and really is. And my prayer is this morning that you will see him in his glory and his splendor of who Jesus truly is. Number one, Jesus is back from Herod. Herod. And he says in verse 39, you have a custom, so there must have been a custom back in that day, that I should release one man for you. He's telling the Jewish people, for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus, who, who they claim he is, he claims he is, or, verse 40, they cried out, no, not this man, we want Barabbas. Now, John says Barabbas was a robber, a robber. Now, if you look at other texts of Scripture, not only was he a robber, he was a murderer, he was a rebel. And they, Pilate basically wants to wash his hands, right? He wants to say, listen, I got this man who's a murderer, a robber, insurrectionist, and I have this miracle worker who feeds people, loves people, and, 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 and cares for people. Which one do you want? Hopefully, they're going to say, well, we don't, want to, we don't want that murderer and insurrectionist and, and robber to be running around the streets. You got us. Release Jesus. That's not what they do. Their sinful hearts and the sovereign, sovereign hand of God won't allow it. Barabbas, we know, means, the word Barabbas means son of the father. See the iron even there. Son of the father, Barabbas, the robber, the murderer, or the real son of God, son of the father. Them, they want him to be crucified. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1 says this. Right? So give us Barabbas, 19.1. Then, after Pilate hears that, took Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you're, reading the, if you're reading the Synoptic Gospels, it also says that Jesus was flogged after a pronouncement of, of crucifixion was pronounced upon him and sent out to be crucified. So when you look at the text, you're like, all right, flogged him, and then you see him put in a purple robe, or is it, was it that they flogged him and sent them off to be crucified? The Scriptures say both. Well, I learned this week that when it talks about being flogged, there are three different types of flogging. I did not know. Now you know. The first flogging was what's called in Latin fustigatio, which means it was a light beating, it was a stick. When, when, when a hooligan was brought in, someone just causing trouble, they would take a stick, they would flog him, warn him, and then send him on his merry way, kind of like, yo, watch yourself. There was a second kind of flogging, which is called a flagelletio, which is a little bit more of, of serious flogging. And then the final flogging that the Romans did in that day was called ver- verberatio, which is the scourging that takes place when someone is stripped and tied to a post and beaten with a whip. We're going to talk about that next week. So there's three stages. So it turns out that Pilate has taken Jesus out and, and, and issued the first type of flogging, that was somewhat minor, but still beaten pretty well in order to soften him so he could go back to the Jews and say, listen, I I, I beat him up. I knocked him around a little bit. I don't find any guilt in him. Let him go. Luke chapter, Luke at the end of Luke, it says this in the same incident. 
Pilate says, I will punish him and I will release him. So I think that's what's happening here. The Jewish people are not hearing Pilate say, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate takes him, flogs him, beats him, and then brings him back out, softening him up, saying, here, take him. They don't want to hear. Look at verse 2. The soldiers, though, this right before this happens now, the soldiers, he gets flogged, he gets beaten. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Pilate beats Jesus, allows the soldiers to mock Jesus, even though he's innocent. I find no guilt in him. That's against the law as well. Now, the crown of thorns, most commentators say, that, especially back in that day, were, were what was put together by the several long spike thorns that were made from the date palm tree and can grow anywhere from you know, six, seven, eight, up to 12 inches. Very thick, very sharp. Very hard, could puncture like milk containers and plastic. It's, 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 it's very, very, very sharp, very pointy. What you see here going on is this mockery. This barracks of, that have gathered together and mocking Jesus, the prisoner. Brutalizing the king of kings. And then they, and then they just mock him and they take this thorn, crown, and place it on the skull of Christ, which caused significant pain, profuse bleeding, and possibly even face distortion. Have you ever been cut anywhere around the forehead? My daughter, my, one of my daughters got hit on the head in the garage with a piece of metal, a lot of blood. And, and they put this crown of thorns, and then they mock him, and then they put this robe over him, probably an old military cloak, or maybe even a purple rug, to mock the king of kings. Matthew tells us they kneeled before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they spit on him. They took the reed, they gave him a scepter, they took it back, and struck him on the head. This comic clown mocking of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 50, verse 6, said hundreds of years before this, I gave my back, this is talking about the Messiah, this was what's going to happen. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Feel that. This mockery, this game they think they are playing, these cruel acts they call comedic fun, was done as the Father and the Son are working together for your redemption. They're treating Jesus like an idiot, like a fool. It's a game, it's a joke. They pushed him, spit on him, slapped him, took the reed from his hand and beat him. So I guess the question that I ask us this morning first is, do you realize, do we realize this morning that this is the plan of God being worked out for us? This has all been predicted by God, shown, revealed, and brought to pass by the sovereign hand and the foreknowing of God for your salvation. 
Do you experience the joy of knowing all that God had to do to forgive you and rescue you and call you his son, his daughter? God loves you. God is bigger than your sin, bigger than your mess-ups. He will bend all of this to glorify himself and to give us his joy. The Father is near. Verse 6, verse 5. Jesus came out after the, 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 the mocking, the, the, the whipping, the, the, I mean the beating, the scourging, the light scourging, I'm sure it wasn't light. I say light, but you know, I don't, I don't mean like light, like we consider light. And they bring him out. And it says, wearing the crown of thorns, verse 5, and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, behold the man. Behold the man. I mean, do you see the irony? Here is the man in which everyone seems to be afraid of, no one wants to deal with, bleeding, uh, uh, beaten, looks rather harmless. Behold the man. Do you know how ironic that statement is? Jesus is, the scripture tells us, the eternal word made flesh and dwells among us. That family is a theological affirmation, a a, a God truth being made that Jesus is indeed the man. They don't understand what they're saying, but Jesus is the man. You see, Adam was the first perfect human. Jesus is also the second perfect human who came into the world to deal with the sin in which the world has been introduced through because of Adam. Before Adam sinned, he had a perfect human nature. But when Adam sinned and corrupted the human race, he dragged all of humanity down with him. His guilt and corruption becomes our guilt and corruption. He and his sin ushered in death. That's why we die. Because of the curse, because of Adam's sin, and all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 5.12 is very clear. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, sin entered the world through Adam, and death through sin, because of Adam, and so death spread to all of us, can't blame him, because all men, women, have sinned. So Christ, the man, came as one who was also fully human to deal with what the first Adam brought about, sin, death, and hell. And now Adam, the perfect man, disobeys God. Sin enters the world. Uh, uh, you know, everything unravels. The shalom, the kingdom, is, is, is distorted. And then Jesus comes, the last Adam, the perfect human, who obeyed perfectly and brought righteousness and life. Behold the man. Yeah, he's the man. Romans 5, 17. Because of one man's trespass, that sins, death reigned through that one man. Death spread to all of us. Paul writes, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. God becomes a man to identify with humanity, yet without sin, to die as an atonement for man's sin. They don't even understand what's going on, and yet they speak. Behold the man. So, 1 Corinthians, let me read one more verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, the first human, all die, so also in Christ, the second Adam, shall all be made alive. Do you see what what the scripture says? The scripture says that by faith in Jesus, followers of Christ are united with him. 
His obedience and his righteousness becomes our obedience and our righteousness. That's what the Reformation was about, imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness. In other words, Jesus lived the perfect life, died an atoning death. His life, his death becomes my life, my death, and my resurrection as his resurrection. It's been imputed, it's been counted toward me by faith, not by works. Everyone is either in Adam, born from their mom with a sinful nature and sinful deeds, will wait judgment, physical and eternal separation from God, or you're in Christ, Paul's favorite term, born anew by faith in the work in the person of Christ and never will taste eternal death, but have eternal resurrection with him. That's the irony. He is the perfect man who lived a perfect life who could only, can, he can only therefore die an atoning death. You know, all the witnesses were too blind to what was going on, to see what was going on. But this man, the man, is displaying his glory. Glory is the one and only son, John tells us. In the very disgrace and the pain and the weakness and the brutalization that was going on, we see the man, and he is the man. Secondly, look at behold the son. Verse six, another mockery, but truth. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, you know what? Take him yourself. Crucify him yourself, for I find no guilt in him. Obviously, sarcasm. They were not expecting the Jewish people to go up to the hill of Golgotha, Calvary's hill, and start nailing Jesus to the cross. They don't find no guilt. You do it. Verse 7. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, we ought to, he ought to die, because, why should he die? Because he has made himself the Son of God. We talked a little bit about this last week. Let me just give you some verses of Scripture. What are they talking about here? Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 says this in, in the Mosaic Law. Whoever, whoever, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner, the visitor, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Blasphemy, derogatory speech, irreproachably talking about God, malicious, misrepresentative, saying things about God that are not true. That's the Old Testament law they're talking about. That is what they said Jesus did. Where do you... You see that? We see that in Mark 14. When Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, just moments before this, Caiaphas, the high priest in the Sanhedrin, asked Jesus straight, straight up, right to the point. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one, of the father? And Jesus said very clearly to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the, the, the body, the, the Supreme Court of Israel, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's authority. That's judgment. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Now the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term, his favorite title that he uses for himself throughout the scripture. And Jesus was stating that he was the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now, you need to understand this. You've been here a while. You know this already, but just in case you haven't, you need to mark this in your Bible. What Jesus is talking about is you find it in the Old Testament, 
Daniel chapter 7. I have the verse up there for you. Daniel chapter 7 is what Jesus is talking about being the son of man coming in the clouds. This is what it reads. This is what we read. So he's not even talking about simply just being the Messiah. What this verse tells us is that he is sharing the rights and authority of God himself. And that's why they they found him guilty of blasphemy. Look at chapter 7 of Daniel. It says this. I saw in the night vision and behold, and behold. With the clouds of heaven, that's the Shekinah glory, that's the presence of God, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, another way of saying God, and was presented before him. And to him the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship him or serve him is the, is the Hebrew. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I will come in the glory of God and judge the whole world. I am the ultimate judge. I will judge all sin and all evil. And that is an unremarkable an absolute unmistakable claim that he is making. I am the ultimate judge. You think I'm on trial. Wait, I'm coming back in the cloud of glory to judge the world. Now we know that's what the Jewish people had in mind because as Jesus is saying this to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, it tells us in Mark 14, 63, that the high priest tore his garment. What further witness do we need, he said. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision, Sanhedrin? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The ripping of the clothes is an ancient sign of of the greatest possible sorrow and indignation. They understood what Jesus was saying. And what Jesus was saying is blasphemy if it were not true. But it is true. And I would submit to you this morning that as you see Jesus proclaimed, as you see Jesus, who he truly is according to scriptures, not the one you made up in your own mind. You can't just simply ignore this. Some people are just noncommittal, or they leave their options open, but when you see Jesus' claim for who he is, that he's going to judge the world, there's got to be movement. You either hate him, run from him, or you bow down before him. And your whole life is centered on him. If, if you call yourself a Christ follower, it's not just showing up to church. It's recognizing he is the eternal son of God who will come and judge. Now, it, it, it's, it's easy. It's easy to look at both the Jewish people, Pilate, you got Jews, Greeks, you got all kinds of different nationalities there. It's easy just to say, you know what, how are they going to treat this guy so poorly, so sacrilegiously, so irreverent. How could they do that? Well, if we're honest, that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is placing ourselves in our own judgment seat and judging God. Sin is, 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 is rebellion against God, substituting yourself in the place where God is supposed to be as judge and ruler. But when you make up your own laws, your own rules, your own ways, and you listen to no one but you, what you're saying is the same thing. You're sitting in the judgment seat of God and the judgment seat of your own life, which is really doing the same thing. And here's the irony. 
Pilate and his crew mocked him and beat him. The religious leaders said he was a blasphemer and guilty of death. But Jesus is the eternal God, the Son of God, who ironically is not being judged by them, but for them. Jesus is not being judged by us, but for us. The man who came, the son who came, came to what? Bear the judgment of our sins, that we may become his children by grace. What Jesus, the Son of God, does, he trades places with us. We who deserve to stand trial and be judged takes hold of him who deserves to be worshipped and praised, and we make him stand on trial. But because of our sins, he's judged by the Father in our place. That's the irony of it all. Sin is substituting ourselves in the place of God. Our salvation is accompanied by God substituting himself for our sins. Sin is substituting ourselves where God's supposed to be, yet God takes our sin and substitute on the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, crystal clear. Listen to this. It says, Paul writes, For our sake, our sake, he, God the Father, made him Jesus to be a sin offering who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It's not righteousness of our own doing. It's the righteousness that Christ's life is given to us by faith. Jesus like, I'm the ultimate judge. Uh, but I, I'm not coming first to judge you. Or really even to be judged by you. I'm coming so I can be judged for you. What you deserve, he got so that we can go free. Behold the man, behold the son, behold the ruler. This passage of scripture is great. Verse eight. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. I'm not sure why he was afraid. Different commentators say different things. Um, Part of the reason why I think he was afraid is when uh, a Roman, a Greco-Roman who hears you're the son of God, he doesn't think messianic Daniel 7. He's not a Jew. So what he's thinking of is the pantheon, is the pluralistic culture of the Greeks that the gods have come down from heaven somehow. He's just scourged Jesus, had him beaten, mocked with a robe and, and a crown. He's like, oh my word, I think the gods are going to come down and get me. That's, that's what he's afraid of, I believe. Acts 14, in Iconium, Paul heals a man and everybody comes rushing in. Oh, the gods have come down. They called Barnabas Zeus. They called Paul Hermas, the Greek gods. And, you know, so Pius a little concerned. He's, he's the son of God. What does that really mean? So I think there was some fear there, some superstition there. But it was also political. You know, we don't know anything about politics, right? I think he feared the Jews. I think he feared the Jewish people and what they may say to Rome, Caesar, who's over Pilate. Here's a little backstory. Pilate was put in charge as a governor of Jerusalem, overseeing Jerusalem. When he got there, he started doing some really stupid things and interfering with the Jewish people. Rome, when Rome conquered that land, Rome allowed the Jewish people to have their worship. In fact, Rome was kind of, Rome thought, you know what, rather than going in, conquer, and force religion, why don't we go in and conquer and just let everybody try to get along and have their own religion. We have plenty of religions to go around. Let's just everybody keep, you know, do what you got to do. Pilate went in and got the Jewish people so angry, he put in icons, he, he did this, he did that, I'm not going to get into everything he did. And the Jewish people were not happy with Pilate. 
So they went behind Pilate's back to Rome to Caesar and said, why is this guy doing? And Caesar listened to the Jewish people and Caesar grabbed Pilate and slapped him around a little bit and said, knock it off. So if you see that, that's why Pilate's like, you crucify him. They're like, no, you crucify him. I'm not doing it, you do it. Well, I'm not doing it, you do it. You see this bouncing back. They're all playing the chess game. We can't do it. We don't have the law to do it. I'm not doing it because I don't want to start a problem. And when you see that, you can see what's going on. Verse 9, he entered his, verse nine, he entered his court, uh, headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? The son of God. The, the son of, did the gods come down? I, is Israel going to be upset? What's going on with you? Jesus gave no answer. Can you imagine? The governor, the ruler of that Jerusalem, no answer. Well, it shouldn't be surprised. Isaiah said hundreds of years before this took place that Jesus would be oppressed, afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Scripture tells us Jesus would do that. Verse 10, Pilate said to him, you're not going to speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Do you understand that? Jesus' silence must have infuriated Pilate. I mean, it's worse than contempt of court. This is a guy that could just say, kill him now. Jesus does speak then. Verse 11, love it. Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all. Not a little bit. At all. Unless it had been given you from above. Meaning God. This is now the final words on the lips of Jesus to Pilate. And Jesus is proclaiming that God is over all and that an earthly governor can only act as God authorizes him. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. But let me tell you something more importantly going on here. Jesus is revealing his trust, faith in his Father's will and will surrender to that will. Jesus knows what lies ahead and he knows who has final rulership. 1 Peter 2.23, this is a great verse. 1 Peter 2.23. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, which he's suffering, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. Father, it's in your hands. No ruler over me has final say. And he was able to surrender then to Rome and to the Jewish people because he was first of all, most importantly, yielded to God. Pilate thinks he's in charge. He's he's displaying this this proud ignorance as if he has authority, and he does not. Pilate is not in control. Jesus is in control. The Father is in control. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, the apostles Peter and John are praying after they were persecuted. And this is their prayer. They were just being persecuted. This is their prayer. For truly, Father, in this city, there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that's everybody, to do whatever your hand, your plan, had predestined to take place. So here's my question for us. Do you think, do we think, 
Do you think that God is in control only in this incident? That God showed up on earth, looked down and said, oh, I better take control of this. I see what's going on with the son, the man, the son, the ruler. I, I, better, I better step in and make sure this thing goes right. And then when everything was done, he's gone. That's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, Joseph, you know the story of Joseph. He was grabbed by his brothers, beaten, and, and thrown in a pit for dead. Told the father he's dead. Sold to slavery. Then went to jail for, for they say he raped Potiphar's wife. He never did. And he's in jail. And all this take place. All this took place in Joseph's life. We find in Genesis chapter 50 that Joseph says, what you wanted for evil, let me read the verse correctly. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All that took place in his life and the final story, God's story, is I will turn it. I will bend it. I will, I will make good out of it. And as I studied that this week, and I thought, well, maybe some of you are thinking, really? All that he went through, all that, I mean, is there got to be a better way, an easier way to have the sovereignty of God fulfilled that doesn't, I mean, Joseph went through so much. And I thought to myself, well, the, 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 part of the reason it is is because I'm hard-headed. I wish it could be easier. It's not. I sin, I sin greatly. But yet God in his sovereignty won't leave me in it, but will continue to work out things in my life for his glory and my good. So, man, I gotta be so complicated. Yeah, I'm complicated, because I'm an idiot. It's complicated. I, I understand that. You know, we cannot know everything God is doing, but we can rest in God's sovereignty. Joseph didn't hold grudges, forgave his brothers because Joseph trusted in God. He didn't play God. And Jesus here is the far and more and greater and ultimate example of, of evil happening. It doesn't say he makes evil good. Evil is still evil, but using it for the glory of God and the good of his people. The greatest sin ever committed, the wickedness that this world has ever known, crucifying the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, and God takes that and bends it and uses it for our good and salvation and his glory. That should be comforting to you. God is the final ruler. Now, man is still responsible. I said this in the first service. You've got to have a category in your brain where God is sovereign, moving all things according to his holy purposes, and man is responsible for the things and the things that he does and says. God is sovereign, man is responsible. Well, how do you put them together? You don't. That's what the scriptures teach. Verse 11. Therefore, Jesus says, the authority you got was from my father alone. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So, Polly, you're not exonerated. You're not uh, 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 absolved from this. But the one who handed me over, which I believe was Caiaphas, leader of the Sanhedrin, handed Jesus over to Pilate, holds the greater sin. But, Polly, you're not, we're not talking about no sin. We're talking about greater sin. It's not like he exonerated for it. Now, Pilate's sin was great. I mean, Jesus was innocent. It didn't matter. He was going to be crucified. But the religious leaders are doing this out of hate, even though they know the scripture. They reject the Messiah. There are degrees of guilt and degrees of eternal punishment, but it's all punishment for those who are outside of Christ, who reject the Messiah. But in all in that, Jesus is still asserting that he is the ruler, that God is the ruler, and there's no earthly governor, there's no earthly priest, 
Judas himself, all of them are doing what God has permitted to happen according to his divine and holy purposes. And finally, behold the king. Behold the man, behold the son, behold the ruler. And look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That's all he needed to hear, right? We've gone behind you. They should have just said, listen, we went behind your back already a couple of times. If you want us to go to Caesar and say there's a king running around here, we'll do it again, no problem. How ironic is that, right? The king of kings, who's not of this world, really is not opposing Caesar, and that they say he's opposed to Caesar. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down, judgment seat, Judgment's happening, this is the final ruling, at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Now, I mentioned this earlier, either it's the Passover feast, which lasts a week, runs into unleavened bread, or the Passover was eaten both on Thursday night and Friday night, depends on the calendar. People, uh, uh, people don't really know exactly um, which one that was, but as I said earlier, Last week, either way, either it was the Passover morning or the Passover feast morning of the Day of Unleavened Bread. Either way, family, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Either way. Either way, he is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Either way, he is the fulfillment of the feast. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as Jesus is being ushered out, there are sacrifices going on in the temple, and that points to Jesus, the true and better sacrifice. And that's what John wants us to see. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour, and he said, Behold your king, mockery. Mockery again. He did not think for a moment this beat-up, bloodied prisoner was a king. In fact, he was an antithesis to what kingships really looked like in that day. Verse 15, the close. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Ludicrous. On the lips of the priest of Israel. Talk about blasphemy. We have no king but Caesar? Really? Dr. Carson, New Testament scholar, writes this. The Hebrew scriptures repeatedly insist that the only true king of Israel is God himself. The Davidic kings are all legitimate, at least in theory, only because they are vassals, monarchs, legi to the Lord, bound by the covenant. But vehemently, these people insist that they have no king but Caesar, They're not only rejecting Jesus' Messiah, the Messiah claims, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope as a matter of principle, rejecting any claimant, we have no king, and finally disowning the kingship of the Lord himself, end quote. In other words, they didn't even say God is our king. We have no king but Caesar. And this cry of derision is simply the Jews uh, joining the whole world, every single tribe, nation, and tongue in rejection of the Messiah, Every one of us who fail to worship and honor God is in fact saying we have no king but Caesar. Yet in spite of all this, Jesus is off to be crucified. And the answer and the reason is because God has decreed from all eternity that Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Greeks should sentence Jesus to death and there's not a power on earth that can change that truth. 
Hmm. Listen, I'm going to end with this. Israel's hope, Israel's hope was for a king to come into Jerusalem to establish a kingdom, to take over Rome, to rule Jerusalem. That was Israel's hope. Pilate, the Gentile, those who are non-Jews, was holding on to his throne, holding on to his kingship. And here we have the irony. Jesus is the king who goes to the cross. Not the kings who sits on thrones with power, but a king who humbles himself, gives his life, and lays down his life on a Roman cross. That's the apex. That's the reality of what's going on right here. Jesus saying, I am the man, I am the son, I am the ruler, I am the king, but not to live and grab power and grab power on a throne, but to die on a cross. Not to gain ultimate power, but to give up ultimate power. Not to rule, but to serve many. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Not the repressive king, but the servant king. The man, the ruler, the king went to the cross for you. So here's the response as we go to communion. Here's the response. Jesus is the man, the perfect one. You're not perfect. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God came down in the person of Christ to identify humanity so he can die for our sins. He is the son, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God came down in human form, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. He is the ruler. He's the sovereign one pushing all of eternity to the purposes, his holy purposes. And he is ruling even now, going to the cross for you, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are not. This communion table is about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This bread that represents his body that was broken for us. The cup represents the blood that was shed for us. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. God has given us the blood so to make atonement for our sins. Pay the penalty. We all pay penalties. We all know what it's like to be sinned against. And yet God comes in the person of Christ, goes to the cross, dies in atoning death, sheds his blood, and for all of us who receive him to accept his sacrifice, we become his children. We're reconciled to God. This communion table is not a king's chapel table. It is a communion table for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted Christ, table's open to you. If you have never trusted Christ, trust Christ today. See him as the man, the son, the ruler, and the king, and bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and come and take communion. If you're not ready, that's cool. We're glad you're here. We love you. Just stay, just sing, talk to me, Pastor Ricky, Chris. We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus Christ. But we're going to spend some time. The band's going to play. We're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to confess our sins to Jesus. We're going to repent of our sins, turn from sin to Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross by taking the cup and the bread that represents his body and blood shed for us. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for sending your son in the likeness of man, yet without sin, so that he can pay the penalty that we owe. Father, thank you that he is the son. He is not only man, but he is God. Therefore, he can forgive sin. And thank you that you are the ruler, the sovereign one, that you allowed this to take place for the final Glorious purpose of salvation. And Father, thank you that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. To him all glory and honor belong. And help us to respond in faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as we sing to him and him alone.